Welcome back to the Form IPLJ Podcast. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. On this week's episode, IPLJ Notes and Articles editor, Alessandra Dajamanjian, and I will speak with Eric Bierbauer, Vice President of Litigation at NBC Universal and Adjunct Professor of Law at Fordham University. We discussed Justice Thomas's analysis of the landmark First Amendment case New York Times v. Sullivan in a recent denial of cert of Catherine McKee. Mr. Bierbauer shares his thoughts on Justice Thomas's interpretation of Sullivan and how a reconsideration of the case could affect defamation law. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, this is Alessandra Daggermanjan and Patrick Howe from IPLJ. We're here today with Eric Bierbauer, Vice President for Litigation at NBC Universal and an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School who teaches First Amendment Law. We're here today to talk about Justice Thomas's recent concurrence which cited his desire to reconsider a landmark First Amendment case, the New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, so thank you so much for talking with us today. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess let's start by learning a little bit more about the case at issue here. Could you discuss the facts and background of New York Times versus Sullivan? Sure. New York Times versus Sullivan is considered one of the seminal First Amendment cases of the 20th century. It was a defamation case. And it came about in the context of the Civil Rights Movement. In 1960, the Times ran a full-page opinion ad. Um, It wasn't something they had reported. It was an ad that was bought by a group of civil rights activists. And the ad was called Heed Their Rising Voices. And it talked about um, police actions against Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists in Alabama. And there was a police chief in Montgomery who alleged that the ad was inaccurate and that because it talked about actions that were taken by the police, it libeled him as the chief of police on the assumption that he would have been someone who was directing those actions. So he sued for libel and he won in the Alabama state courts, $500,000 judgment. And uh, to put that in context, The Times and a lot of other northern news outlets were reporting on the civil rights movement in the South at that time and were the subject of similar lawsuits. And it has been said that if these lawsuits had actually delivered on those damages awards, it might have driven the Times and some of these other publications out of business or at least chilled them from reporting on the civil rights movement at all. Um, So the Times appeals to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in a decision by uh, Justice Brennan for the majority, uh, it was held that a public official, such as Sullivan, the plaintiff, could only recover in a libel case if he was able to prove that the defendant publisher acted with actual malice, uh, which is a confusing term of art because it doesn't really have anything to do with common law malice in terms of spite or ill will. It means that Uh, The publisher either knew that a statement was false or acted with reckless disregard as to whether it was true or false. And this was a very important decision in terms of the First Amendment, in terms of the rights of the press and their ability to report on the actions of public officials. So what has been sort of the subsequent effect on public officials' ability to bring a suit for libel after Sullivan? Well, it became much more difficult to win that kind of lawsuit, that essentially now they had to satisfy this very high standard of fault 
in addition to proving the elements of libel at common law. Now, a false statement, defamatory, damages to reputation of and concerning the plaintiff. So it had an effect that um, made newspapers and other publishers um, a bit more able to report without fear that they would be uh, held to account for huge damages awards if they got something wrong essentially by accident. So now Justice Thomas uh, has said that he wants to reconsider Sullivan, um, specifically in his concurrence denying cert to Catherine McKee, who recently sued Bill Cosby for libel. Um, So could you tell us a little bit more about that case? Sure. So Catherine McKee uh, was a, a person who accused Bill Cosby of having sexually assaulted her uh, some decades ago. Right. And she went public with those accusations. And Bill Cosby's lawyers then came out and said essentially that she was lying and also said some other things about her. And she contends that that was defamatory. So she sues Cosby, um, and I believe his lawyer as well, for defamation on that grounds. And the case moves through the courts of the First Circuit, and it's dismissed. And it's dismissed on the ground that she was a public figure. Um, Now, an important coda to Sullivan is that subsequent to Sullivan, later U.S. Supreme Court cases held that public figures would also have to prove actual malice in a defamation case. And you can be a public figure for all purposes, as someone who's just extremely famous and in the public eye. Um, Madonna, right? Clearly a public figure for all purposes. Or you could be a public figure for a limited purpose, because you're involved in some particular public controversy. Now, uh, Ms. McKee was held to be a limited purpose public figure by the lower courts. And she was appealing that determination or trying to get cert, that is, from the Supreme Court, on that determination. And it was denied. Um, She was not granted cert on that issue. And Justice Thomas saw fit to write a concurring opinion of his own. And why did they decide that she was a public figure? Well, I believe that um, it was determined that she was a public figure in the lower courts because she had reached out and made these public accusations and contacted reporters about them. So it's whether someone is a public figure is a fact-dependent issue, which is probably why the Supreme Court wasn't going to take up the cert in this case. And Sullivan's, Sullivan's usually a case that's brought up during um, Supreme Court justices' confirmation hearings. It's often asked in that sense. Am I correct? I think that's right. I think that uh, you know, certainly recently um, justices during their nomination hearings have been asked about Sullivan, what's their position on it, um, whether it's something that they would uh, that they would view as being settled And what exactly is Justice Thomas's Sullivan and the president that has said? So um, you know, Justice Thomas, um, based on this concurring opinion, would like Sullivan to be reconsidered that he believes that it was not um, accurate representation of the original intent of the framers of the Constitution. And as you know, Justice Thomas is um, an originalist by the stated philosophy, Um, and instead was essentially policy masquerading as law. So that's his position. He thinks that it should be reconsidered for that. Why does Justice Thomas believe that it was 
policy rather than legally based. What Does he say anything specific about that? Well, he goes through his analysis and says um, that at the time that the First Amendment uh, came to be, you know, in 1791, there was a common law of defamation in you know, what was becoming the United States, and uh, it did not uh, provide for any actual malice-type standard. And he goes through some examples of laws in the states at the time, um, in particular cases that were coming up you know, in the decades after the First Amendment uh, was enacted, that uh, did involve public officials or public figures, and they were not held to have to prove these standards of fault. And he also says that the First Amendment was not understood to have supplanted libel law until the Sullivan decision, which was in 1964. Do you think that the uh, landscape has changed now so that there could be a different interpretation that would better fit today's uh, media and public figures? A different interpretation of Sullivan? Or of the constitutional meaning of the First Amendment? I think you have to you have to think about what Justice Thomas is really getting at here, and you know to what extent his particular criticisms in this concurring opinion are really borne out by Sullivan itself and by the state of First Amendment law. You know, the Sullivan case uh, does actually um, look at some detail at contemporaneous events around the time of the enactment of the First Amendment and shortly thereafter, and uses that as one of the bases for imposing the actual malice requirement for libel of public officials. You know, most importantly, it looks at the Sedition Act of 1798, which was a piece of legislation which essentially said that if someone criticized the government or government action, they could be prosecuted for it. And people were prosecuted for it. And uh, this was during the John Adams administration. And then Thomas Jefferson was elected president and pardoned all of the people who had been convicted under it. And subsequently, it has been viewed as a mistake. The Sedition Act, that is, was viewed as a, as a mistake and something that would violate the First Amendment. And I think when you're looking at cases like Sullivan, there can be very little doubt that um, the plaintiff in that case was essentially trying to bring something very like a sedition action. You know, he had been criticized for official actions that he was taking as a police chief, um, if you could even identify him as the subject of the, of the advertisement. And that is very, very close to an act, uh, to a, an action for sedition, you know, criticism of the government versus criticism of a public official because of the way that they are in, you know, carrying out their public duties are very close to being the same thing. So I think you have to bear that in mind when you're considering Justice Thomas's criticism of Sullivan that some of these issues were actually considered by Justice Brennan, the majority in that case, and they decided you know, that, in fact, if you look at the intent of the founders and how the First Amendment was viewed and how the Sedition Act played out and was you know, essentially agreed to be a big mistake, um, maybe there was an intent to give protection from these kinds of lawsuits. Would you say the same thing about public figures like a Madonna who's not in a government position? 
Well, I think it's a slightly different argument, right? Mm -hmm. That Sullivan relates directly to this issue of seditious libel, in my opinion, um, and public officials. When Sullivan gets broadened out to public figures, I think the argument becomes, you know, what what are we what are we doing when we are when we have a free press, when we have freedom of speech? You know, we're participating in a dialogue with each other, whether it's about politics, whether it's about society, whether it's about art. And if someone is a public figure within that debate, within that discussion, then they kind of expose themselves to the rough and tumble. And that's the reasoning for why you would extend that actual malice protection to public figures. And, you know, public figures generally have, this is maybe not so much of a distinction today in the age of social media, but historically public figures have had a greater ability to respond if they're criticized or if there's reporting about them that they believe is inaccurate. And they're important. You know, they have an effect on other people's lives and what other people think. And so that's the reasoning behind extending it to public figures. Justice Thomas also stated that he thinks states are perfectly capable of creating their own defamation laws and controlling this themselves. Do you think that that's possible today, getting to the 14th Amendment issue a little bit of Sullivan? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one. You know, Justice Thomas points out in his concurring opinion that the First Amendment really wasn't applied to libel actions until Sullivan, which is correct, kind of elides the fact that the First Amendment wasn't held to apply to the states under the 14th Amendment until 1925. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a reason why those state laws had grown up without having been scrutinized under the First Amendment until Sullivan. Um, Then in terms of what state laws uh, might look like absent Sullivan, I think there are a few things to think about there. You know, number one is the facts behind Sullivan itself. You know, the state courts there um, effectively were trying to squelch reporting on the most important issue of the day. And the Supreme Court, you know, essentially stepped in and created the Sullivan rule. um, And states were no longer able to do that. So it does raise some questions about whether states are necessarily going to be the best guardians of what we consider to be our rights of freedom of expression. The other issue, of course, is that, you know, we have 50 states. And were Sullivan to you know, magically disappear at this stage, um, you would probably have a lot of states that would stick with Sullivan or something very, very much like Sullivan. It's enshrined, you know, in state constitutions. It's been the subject of thousands and thousands of decisions in the federal court system and the state court systems. It's been adopted as a standard, actual malice that is, um, in other legal systems around the world. It is a very powerful precedent and a lot of states are gonna stick with it. Now maybe some states don't stick with it. Well, you know, you know from your civil procedure course that that kind of imbalance between one state law and another is likely to lead to significant problems with foreign shopping. So why does Justice Thomas want to reconsider this case now? Has this been discussed before, or is there something about the landscape now that he's bringing up this issue? You know, there have always been, you know, some criticisms of Sullivan, just like there are criticisms of a lot of other Supreme Court decisions, you know, going back for decades. Um, Justice White, I believe, you know, had some 
concerns about some of the later cases that extended Sullivan to public figures, although he voted in the majority in Sullivan. Um, he may have had some misgivings about Sullivan itself, you know, later in his career. Um, you know, there are certainly public figures, um, public officials, our current president, for example, who have made some suggestions about opening up the libel laws. Um, I think it's noteworthy that in this case, uh, Justice Thomas wrote this concurrence alone. You know, none of the other justices on the Supreme Court were willing to join the concurrence here. And speaking to that point, if Sullivan is reconsidered, if the actual malice standard is reversed, how would that affect how media would be able to report? Well, I think it would have a great effect, you know, speaking hypothetically on how media are able to report. Um, you know, what Sullivan does and what it, you know, says that it is intended to do is to give some breathing space to those who would speak. And remember, of course, that we're not just talking about the organized press here, that absent Sullivan, you know, anyone who reported facts or alleged facts about a public official in a social media post, you know, in a tweet, could potentially be subject to liability with a relatively low level of fault. And you think about what kind of chilling effect that might have on public discourse. You know, that if you're going to talk about a public official and you get it wrong, and that public official or a public figure who has a great deal more resources, perhaps, than the person who is commenting in the course of a public debate may be able to essentially threaten them into silence. And that would have a severe chilling effect. Speaking to your work specifically, how do you think that kind of change would affect what you do as a media lawyer? Well, you know, as a, as a media lawyer, um, you're generally holding yourself and your clients to a higher standard. You know, we don't go out and say, oh, we can get it wrong as long as we didn't know it was wrong or we didn't act with reckless disregard for its falsity. Your goal is to go out and get it right, you know, and that's what my clients are trying to do. Now, I think it does have a significant effect on potential litigations because what you would then have is you'd have a greater likelihood that cases where there's any question as to falsity are going to last a lot longer than they might otherwise, right? You know, there are cases that we can get dismissed because there's no adequate allegation of actual malice which, if you didn't have a Sullivan standard, might go on and on to potentially a trial. So I think it would make a difference on the litigation side in terms of what we're trying to you know, achieve in terms of our reporting and legal vetting. Um, it would have an effect, but it wouldn't change the fundamental fact that you're trying to get it right. Now, different aspects of defamation has been in the news recently most recently, um, Alan Dershowitz released an opinion piece um, talking about whether or not to expand defamation to people who are deceased, which, as you know, you can't be deceased and have a defamation lawsuit. That's a, an interesting thing. I actually had not heard that previously. What was the context in which uh, Alan Dershowitz said that? So, of course, HBO recently released Finding Neverland, a documentary about Michael Jackson, and he released a piece saying that Michael Jackson's estate should be able to sue for defamation based on that documentary. It's an interesting issue. It's not one which, frankly, I have a tremendous amount of familiarity with, and I don't think it's one which has really come up mm -hmm. and become a major part of the debate 
um, over uh, over defamation. In terms of the the you know, rights of the deceased to defamation, um, we've we've never had that rule, as far as I know, in the United States. And I think you'd have to think about where you would draw the line on that. You know, does a historical figure, as long as there's someone who can claim rights to the estate, then have the ability to sue for defamation? You know, how long would that last? Um, and how would you have issues of proof? You know, how would you prove that something was false? Um, or conversely, you know, try to get rid of a case by showing that it was substantially true at some early stage of the litigation when the person is no longer there to be a witness, you know, testify, um, and other evidence may well be gone as well. Um, and the other thing that I would say is that, you know, there are other countries around the world where it is possible to uh, sue over defamation of the dead. And in fact, I think the European Court of Human Rights had a case in front of it not long ago. And I think what you would see in these cases is that it's often a way to, again, squelch dissent and effectively sedition. You know, if someone is criticizing the leader of a country after that leader is dead, or criticizing what he did when he was in office, that can be the subject of a defamation suit. And the reason those suits are often brought is to chill you know, political speech. So I guess one last question we have is what you think is the likelihood of Sullivan actually being reconsidered? Well, you know, I don't want to be overly um, pessimistic. You know, I think you have one justice who has espoused this uh, particular viewpoint. Um, I don't want to be overly optimistic. You know, I think it's significant when a justice like Justice Thomas um, comes out with a concurring opinion like this. You know, I think what it does is it tends to move the window of acceptable debate, that there may now be litigants who will at least take a flyer on arguing on appeals in the state courts or in some of the federal courts that Sullivan should be cut back, um, if not completely overturned. And the more that that bubbles up through the courts, the more likelihood that you know it could gain some purchase at the Supreme Court level at some future time when the court when the court is perhaps composed differently. Um, you know, one final thing I would say is that you know, Justice Thomas is a very interesting justice when it comes to the First Amendment. That here you see him um, taking a very originalist stance and seeming to have a very narrow view of what the First Amendment might do. In other cases, he has been much more um, expansive, shall we say. Um, he's one of the justices, for example, who has come out and said that a case called Red Lion ought to be overturned. That's a case that says that the First Amendment uh, doesn't apply with as strict a standard to broadcast speech as it does to speech in other media. He has said that commercial speech should get the same level of protection as non-commercial speech. Um, and he was the author uh, several years ago of the court majority decision in a case called Reed versus Town of Gilbert, uh, which made it very clear that any kind of restriction based on the content of speech, um, whether a law restricts the content of speech on its face or whether the purpose of it is to restrict the content of speech, has to be given strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of First Amendment scrutiny and almost no laws will survive that level of scrutiny. Um, 
an interesting thought experiment is take that standard and apply it to state libel laws, and they probably wouldn't stand up. So, you know, if you're thinking about the overall um, uh, edifice of the First Amendment, if you will, it's a little hard to reconcile an overturning of Sullivan with other aspects of First Amendment jurisprudence that Justice Thomas and other justices now over the course of many decades have signed on to unequivocally in the context of campaign finance laws, for example, Great. which gets strict scrutiny. Great. Do you have any closing thoughts for us before we end? I think that's all. Unless you have any no, I think that's it for today. No, thank you very much. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Harrison. Our volume 29 editor in chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to Alessandra and Mr. Aaron Gerbauer for making this episode possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FordhamITLJ. You can also visit our website at FordhamITLJ.org for daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.